Brain cancer, leukemia, and lymphoma are just a few of the devastating illnesses that Staten Islanders have attributed to the borough's former landfills throughout the years. While a direct link between the two hasn't been discovered, New York City recently paid millions to residents who have been making such claims since the early 1990s. I mean, you put a, a dollar amount on it, and obviously the dollar amount was pretty significant, and obviously touched something that a lot of Staten Islanders sort of colloquially talk about in terms of the landfills and cancer. But um, this is an opportunity to put a human face on this, and I think that was important. Obviously, you, know, you hear almost three dozen people or, and, and families at this point that have been suffering with this stuff and some of those struggles have spanned for a pretty long time and you know it was powerful for me to hear and I felt like it was just important that we, we tell the story of, of those individuals. Welcome to the Staten Island Advances from the Scene, a podcast bringing you an inside look at the biggest stories on Staten Island with the reporters who cover them. I'm your host, Eric Bascom, and this week I'm joined by Staten Island Advance, Science, and Breaking News reporter Joseph Ostapiuk to discuss a $34 million settlement paid to Staten Islanders who claim that they developed debilitating cancers as a result of the borough's former landfills. Thanks for joining me today, Joe. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast again, this time to talk about some stories you've been doing on your new science beat. I know handling some of these science-based environmental and climate stories was something you've really been pushing for, something you're really passionate about. So I was wondering if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about the types of stories that you'll be covering now and, and why you thought it was so important for us to have a designated reporter in this space. I've been covering things like pollution, its effect on Staten Islanders, COVID-19, obviously, for a while now. And this is something that I just felt like just geographically Staten Island being an island in terms of the effects of climate change are important. And then, you know, we've had pollution issues in the past and continue to have pollution issues higher than normal asthma rates, things along those lines. Then obviously the COVID-19 pandemic exacerbated a lot of things for us. And I just felt like there, as we go in these next few years and in coming decades, things like climate, things like pollution are going to become even more important. And I think Staten Islanders deserve to know as much as possible about things like their air, their water and and how safe they are to things like storms. So this was something that was important to me personally. And, and then obviously on the on the lighter end, you know, parks and trees and Staten Islanders care about that too. So I'm looking forward to reporting about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you touched on an interesting point there with the, with the climate reporting, the environment reporting. We're seeing more and more of these extreme weather events in recent years. You've done some great reporting on the wetlands issues, some overdevelopment concerns that people have there, how that could affect us in the event of, you know, future flooding or, or anything like that. And there's just, there's so many layers to it. I I know science is just like such a general term, right, that we're using just because it's kind of all encapsulating. But I I think it's really important work that you're doing now. And I'm, I'm really excited to have you focused in on that as well. So thank you again for joining us. Like I said, in the open, you know, for decades, Staten Islanders have been saying that these former landfills, you know, resulted in residents getting sick. And the city hasn't really admitted that that was a case. But a settlement was reached in late December that paid nearly $34 million to victims who suffered from cancer. And so what can you tell us about that lawsuit? How did it start and and kind of the long winding road it took towards an eventual resolution decades later? Yeah, I mean, long and winding is is an understatement for this. I mean, this began before I was born. Um, Attorney Mitchell Ashley, he was pursuing a case on Staten Island that was aimed to tie rare cancer to the borough's landfills. He did a a similar case in the Bronx in the uh, Pelham Bay landfill. 
And he sort of identified a few Staten Island residents who were having similar issues. And then the suit was filed in 1993. A whole host of things sometimes make these cases slow and arduous, things like studies that have to be conducted and so on. Um, and actually, unfortunately, one third of the victims in this lawsuit died in the process of its resolution. You know, in their cases, their families carried the torch there. And then the firm of Kaharsky, Levinson, uh, Giovanazzo, brought it to a conclusion in December when they basically agreed with the city on a settlement, as you mentioned, $34 million to 32 families. That's sort of where we're at now. Can you give us some insight into what took so long? I imagine that for years there really wasn't a lot going on in in this, right? And that it, it kind of picked up steam again later in the process? Yeah, for sure. I mean, this, like, like I mentioned, Ashley started this. This ended up switching law firms. The city in the process conducted a pretty wide-spanning study that took more than a decade to complete that was basically assessing, you know, if there was any connection between the landfill and rare cancers. Courts are courts are a slow animal sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And after the settlement was announced, you've been working on this really powerful series called Stories from the Landfill, which I would encourage all of our listeners to check out if they haven't already, uh, which profiles some of the plaintiffs that received compensation through the settlement. And I'm curious kind of how do you found these people that were willing to talk to you about such a serious topic and, and why did you think that it was so important for us to share their stories? Mm-hmm. For sure. So I mean, we have been in contact with the firm I mentioned before and we were able to chat with them and connect with a pair of their clients that were included in this. One of them actually lives in Florida, so I, I spoke to them over over Zoom, which is actually how a lot of our interviews have been going, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't too much of a difference. But I mean, this story, the initial one was interesting to me. I mean, you put a a dollar amount on it, and obviously the dollar amount was pretty significant, and obviously touched something that a lot of Staten Islanders sort of colloquially talk about in terms of the landfills and cancer. But um, this is an opportunity to put a human face on this, and I think that was important. Obviously, you know, you hear almost three dozen people or, and, and families at this point that have been suffering with this stuff. I, I personally wanted to know more from the, the source themselves. So I was, I was grateful. They were actually very forthcoming with some of the things they've been through, some of the struggles they've been through. And some of those struggles have spanned for a pretty long time. And, you know, it was powerful for me to hear. And I felt like it was just important that we, we tell the story of, of those individuals. So you, you see it more as a more than a court document that, that comes out in you know, late December. Like you said, it's about humanizing the story. It's about giving it more life and, and it kind of understanding who that person was, their significance to the community, whatever it may be. So I thought there was like some really interesting overlap there between the type of work that you do on your original beat of, of breaking news, but then kind of bringing that into the environmental thing and just looking for potential follow-ups that kind of build on what we already have there. So like I said, I've just really enjoyed reading some of those stories, which we're going to get into a little bit now. They're so well-written and they're they're so powerful, like you said. The first one, it it focused on Stephen McFeely, who unfortunately passed away in February 1993 at just 25 years old after a battle with cancer. You spoke with his brother, Robert McFeely. This was kind of similar to the situation you discussed earlier, where uh, a family member kind of picked up the torch and continued to fight for his justice, uh, for his brother's justice long after his passing. I thought the story just did such a great job of showing how the pain associated with losing a loved one never really fades for the family, whether it be the the brother or the mother, which I know, I'm sure you'll touch on a little bit, but what are some of the things that stood out to you the most when you were working on that story and when you were speaking with the family? Yeah, I mean, for stories like this, as a reporter, I feel like sometimes you don't have to do too much or, or pull too much out. Um, Robert was very 
open and honest with me about his brother's story and the importance for him of getting some sort of resolution to this. I mean, Stephen's room was something that, that stuck out to me. Robert explained to me how his mother, who I, I didn't speak with personally, basically hasn't changed their room since they left. You know, His wallet is still in the room. Um, for years, his car was still in her driveway. And she just had a really tough time with the loss of her son, who was only in his 20s at the time. And that, to me, was poignant. I felt like we, we can talk about things like, like resolutions, like settlements, but when it comes down to the human factor, that really can't get solved in courts. And I, I saw there that there's still obviously a very much open wound from that, even you know decades later at this point. And um, I mean, it, it makes you feel for the victims' families. As a reporter, those are always difficult to sort of endure and you know even talk to them just vicariously experiencing what they experience. But um, the settlement itself wasn't an admission of guilt from the city, as you mentioned. Um, but Robert, talking about his, his brother, he even felt some lingering uh, feelings that, that there wasn't an admission of guilt and he felt like there was some justice still left on the table in, in, in not admitting that it was connected to the landfill. His brother's cancer was connected to the landfill. So that, that to me is what made telling the story from a human angle so important, I think. We'll be right back. The Mayor of Maple Avenue is a powerful multi-part podcast about Sean Sinisey, a victim of former Penn State football coach Jerry Sandusky, who was arrested 10 years ago for numerous child sexual abuse charges. The podcast series is written and hosted by Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Sarah Gannam, who takes listeners into the world of addiction rehabilitation, where society can be quick to celebrate the consequences for abusers while not addressing the needs of their victims. Subscribe now to The Mayor of Maple Avenue wherever you get your podcasts. This happened so long ago, but it's still obviously so fresh in in their minds and in their hearts. It's, as I mentioned, he passed away in, in February 1993. This is nearly 30 years ago at this point. And to think that his room is still intact and his wallet still sitting on the nightstand or, or whatever it may be, those types of things, it really shows you how that can just kind of stick with you and how that kind of pain never really subsides for family members, even when you think you might get some sort of justice at the end and then you're not even satisfied with what comes of that. So it's got to be just heartbreaking for them and, and just a frustrating and terrible thing to kind of live with and, and move forward with. But I want to shift gears now and, and move towards the second story, which focused on Scott Osher, who who lived on Staten Island near the Brookfield landfill as a child, but he then left the borough as a young adult. And that's when he started to experience some of these illnesses that, that he feels was were associated with the landfills. So first, can you just kind of walk us through his timeline? Because I, I think our listeners will be amazed to learn what this man has endured in the past few decades. And and second, now that the settlement has been reached, did, did it give him any more closure than it did the first family? Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about Scott and Stephen, too, is um, when we, I was on the Zoom call with both of them, uh, well, I was on the Zoom call with Stephen's brother, Robert. I mean, they lived within, you know, a stone's throw of one another growing mm-hmm. up, which was, which was pretty interesting to me. I mean, they were literally down the block from one another. Going to Scott, I mean, he was amazing to speak to. Uh, I lived on Staten Island from June 1974 to May 1991. I lived on uh, Don Avenue between Barlow and Leverett, which is three blocks from the dump site. Day to day, we played in the landfill because it was pretty cool seeing the trucks in and you could just walk in there. It wasn't unheard of to walk down two blocks, you know, play on play on the hills, on the, on the mountain. 
grounds, those little streams actually. We got the chance as kids, we would play there. Soon after I moved to Florida, I lost a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. And originally I just thought it was the stress of moving from, you know, thought I hurt myself in the gym. So I got a massage and the next day I had a lump on my, uh, like my clavicle. All the massage therapist and said, uh, man, whatever you did, I think it's working because, uh, I don't know. I got a, I got a, like a knot. She's like, touch it. Is it, does it hurt? And I said, no, it, it doesn't hurt. She was very concerned about mm-hmm. that. She took me to her doctor. And literally, he just looked at me. I guess I had, you know, black under the eyes. He said, how are you sleeping? And I go, well, I have night sweats. I sweat at night. He had an x-ray machine in his in his office, took an x-ray, asked me if I smoked. And I was a young man, and I never smoked. He said, your lungs are black. I'm very concerned what this is. We have to go. I want to get in tomorrow for a, uh, a biopsy. And sure enough, he came back as Hoskins. You know, he goes through chemotherapy, and which is a very, very tough thing at the time. And actually, he, he went through a form of chemotherapy. He told me they don't even really use anymore because of how strong it is. He beats that. He goes and he gets another cancer shortly afterwards. These were obviously surprising for him, given the fact that he didn't have any genetic disposition towards this, he said. Years passed, years upon years, and then he ends up getting another pair of cancers. Uh, he's been, and actually when I was speaking with him, he was actually still hoarse from the treatments that he was going through. He's a, he was a healthy, he's a healthy guy now. He, uh, you know, he does jujitsu, he told me, and he, he, he works out in the gym, but he has been absolutely through the ringer for years upon years now. Um, he told me he feels some closure from this. You know, that's a complicated thing in some, in, in a situation like this. But the thing that stood out to me is how lucky he said he felt despite all the things that he had went through. He knows that, you know, many of the, not many, but a few of the plaintiffs in the same lawsuit he was in didn't make it. And there were people who only got one cancer and, you know, like, like Stephen and, and just weren't able to, to beat it. So he knows that others weren't so lucky. And he was a pretty remarkable figure to speak to for this story. Somebody who had suffered through it personally and someone who obviously felt very strongly that his exposure to the landfill was the cause of his multiple cancers now four in, in you know the span of a couple decades. Wow. And you know, one thing that I found most interesting about your reporting on this topic, which we've touched on a little bit, but I want to kind of dive into now is that the city agreed to settle this lawsuit, right? But they didn't actually accept any culpability here. They didn't admit that the cancers were in any way linked to the landfills. So I think for people from the outside, it might be a little confusing. Like, why would the city agree to pay these people if they don't believe to be at fault? For sure. That's obviously a contentious argument. You you have lawyers and plaintiffs on one side, who say that while they didn't admit culpability, why would they pay if they didn't feel like they could have lost in a thing like a trial? Mm-hmm. The city, on the other hand, feels like this is just better off their plate. The city said the settlement was in its best interest to just settle them. These were long-standing cases, they said. They basically wanted it off their plate, and the $34 million to them was worth it to just sort of settle these, give it to the families, and move on from here. The plaintiffs, on the other hand, felt like if multiple that I spoke to, both Scott and and, uh, Robert and the lawyers, felt like if this did have to come down to a point where this went to a trial that the city wouldn't have won. Obviously, we don't know and we won't know. 
But that's definitely been sort of the, the two-sided argument here. In the end, the city doesn't admit culpability in any of these cases. Yeah. And, you know, in, in the statement that you received from the city for your article, they said that the various studies that have been conducted over the years found no evidence that the landfills resulted in increased cancer rates on Staten Island. But I know that those findings have left many residents skeptical. I know over the years I've covered some uh, of the state meetings at CSI when they've come and spoken about the results of those studies. And for me, the, the people in the crowd, uh, what it really came down to is they, they just didn't really believe the state too much, it seemed like. They said the state did this these studies and, you know, this is the results that they found. And the people there said, well, then why is this our reality? Why are so many people suffering from these things at disproportionate rates to, to other places? Now, the state and the city will say that the rates are not disproportionate in the sense and it's not condensed around the areas where the landfills were. But what can you tell us kind of about these studies and, and, and what they found? Sure. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a complex one. And uh, you mentioned, you know, you did some coverage. Our colleague, Paul Yoda, did some coverage. There were, a co- there were a few studies that were done. As you mentioned, the State Department of Health did a study. They found that no environmental exposures were responsible to the borough's elevated cancer levels, that there were other factors. The quote from that was that they found little evidence of an association between living close to the former Fresh Kills landfill and cancer. Obviously, Fresh Kills and Brookfield sort of connect for those who aren't aware of the geography of that. Uh, The city health department began a study in the 90s that continued through the 2000s into the 2010s that analyzed cancers in the area, different types of cancers, and then the rates of those cancers in the surrounding area. There were some slightly higher rates of specific cancers that were found in the areas surrounding the landfills, but the study didn't find evidence to support a link to potential landfill-related exposures. So basically what that means is that while they saw these elevated cancers, they couldn't find a definitive reason for why that was. Something that they proposed in that was that because people lived in the area, because they chatted more about cancers and living close to landfills, that they got screened more often. And then that makes them obviously find more incidents of cancer. So that's that's one of their explanations. But as you mentioned, I mean, I think a distrust of the studies is probably an understatement. Um, there's definitely some people who are heavily skeptical of the data. And the data itself leaves a lot of questions and leaves a lot of people feeling without much resolution on those studies. So definitely a, a longstanding issue of trust and then also a long standing issue that that still has questions that are that are up in the air. Right. And so I want to kind of jump back to talking about your new beat and what you're doing now with these science mm-hmm. stories, because I think they're so important, especially like we said, in, the, in these times where we're dealing with so many different issues in terms of the coronavirus pandemic and climate change and environmental issues galore, really. The first few years at the company, you focused primarily on breaking news reporting, not to say you didn't cover other things, because as we know, we all kind of mm-hmm. get pulled all over yeah. the place <laughs> at this company sometimes. Um, but you were primarily doing breaking news, crime, uh, responding to events. So now that you're also handling a ton of this environmental and climate-based stuff. I was curious kind of how your process compares to what you had been doing previously. What are what are some of the key similarities and differences between reporting on breaking news versus reporting on these science stories? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think for me, the similarities between the two are actually, there's more of them than, than I first thought. I mean, things like crime, there's, there's usually initial events that are happening and, and similar to you know, covering things like climate. I mean, we have storms, we have reports that come out. But after those come out, there's there's other follow-ups to, to be had. We, we do this in breaking news, as you mentioned, following up with families. We go to court, we follow this case through. 
And then we also tackled the underlying things that cause certain crimes. And for me, that's something that I see equally as much in covering things, science-based things. You'll hear an initial story, and then there's stuff to parse through throughout afterwards. And that's something to me that I felt like was a strong similarity. And also similarity between the two of them, it's an important thing to the public. Crime is obviously something that people care about in their neighborhood. But climate and is going to be something that if people don't care about now is, is going to be a present factor in their everyday lives, unfortunately, one way or another, even if we make drastic steps to remediate issues. Climate, on the other hand, from crime becomes, you know, and environmental work and science reporting becomes a little bit more in the weeds. It becomes a little bit more complicated. The people you speak to, scientists often, meteorologists, experts and stuff, they sometimes struggle to clarify things or, or explain things in a way that's very palatable. So yeah. for me, my role in a lot of ways has been as an explainer, somebody who is able to take these complex topics, take them down. How does this matter to you? Because that's what Staten Islanders want to know. And then what's the bigger picture and then also the smaller picture in, in your neighborhood? And that's been a challenge, Something, but that's something that I like to do. When we discuss things like wetlands, the process that wetlands do to retain rainwater and retain you know, storm surges is complicated. But what it ends up being is less water in your basement. That's something that's a lot more simple, I think, for, for Staten Islanders to, to understand. And I think that's something we need more of, and it's something that I'm going to continue to work on. And in general, in, in science reporting, I think we need a lot more of it, just making stuff palatable. Science reporting has been around for decades, but hasn't always been that great at making people understand why they should care. And in a lot of ways, that could be a cause of why we're in the situation we're in, where we're seeing a significant challenge within these next few decades from climate change and not just things like rising seas, things like more intense storms. I mean, we saw it during Ida, although that can't directly be linked to climate change, more storms like that are going to be happening more often. And we have the firmest science yet that human emissions are causing that science, causing those storms, causing these issues. And they're going to continue, unfortunately, one way or another to to continue being a problem for us, especially living on an island. One of your points is something that I tell people all the time when I talk about my job, which is that I, such a big part of it is taking those big, complex issues that sometimes when we first look at them, we don't necessarily understand 100%, <laughs> right? That's that's why we do our research. That's why we talk to experts. That's mm -hmm. why we you know, have people break it down for us so that we can then break it down further for the public so that the average person who's reading our stories has an idea of what we're doing without having to you know, read a legal document or a science journal or, or, mm -hmm. or whatever it may be. And just kind of taking those complex things and breaking them down in a way that is more palatable, as you mentioned. And now you're doing it in the subject where it is probably, you know, among the most difficult with science. It's one of the most complicated beats mm -hmm. that we could have. I mean, it's one thing, you know, in the, the politics beat, figuring out, you know, what's the next step for this bill? What does it need to become mm -hmm. law? What if this person vetoes it? What, you know, those kinds of things that they can be complicated and difficult in their own right. With breaking news, sometimes it seems it can be a little more straightforward. You're getting the information from the police, things that we, for better or for worse, see fairly often or, or we have experience with in the past, whereas science, it's kind of an ever-changing field. We've got all of this new stuff that we're trying to understand and we're trying to make other people understand. But I think that's something that you've always been really great at as a writer. So I'm excited to have you kind of now on this beat, you know, in that role and, and helping the people of Staten Island understand these stories and how it can impact them moving forward. So I really love all the new work that you're doing on your beat. And I really appreciate you coming on today to join me, Joe. Thanks. Thanks for having me. 
Did you know the Richmond Town Courthouse held its last session on March 3rd, 1919, before moving to St. George? Thank you for listening to the Staten Island Advances from the scene. If you like what you've heard, please make sure to rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit SILive.com for the latest on all these stories and more. Thank you for supporting local journalism.